Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome once again to First Move for the final time this week. It's great to be with you as always. On today's programme, though, a closer look inside the worsening humanitarian crisis unfolding in India. The government's principal scientific advisor and the co-chair of its COVID task force joins us to discuss what more must be done as the nation fights to save lives. Also coming up on the show, the EU's executive president for the digital age, Margrethe Vestager, on the promise and perils of artificial intelligence and the status, too, of ongoing probes into big tech. Now, big tech set to bounce a little after yesterday's across-the-board Wall Street pullback, fueled, as I mentioned there, by reports that the Biden administration is considering steep capital gains tax hikes. That led to stock price yikes and a 1% pullback for the majors, as you can see. The taxing turbulence also creeping into crypto. Bitcoin falling below $50,000 and headed for its worst week this year. European investors, meanwhile, paying back risk this Friday, too, despite great data from the European factory sector operating at its strongest pace in decades. The services sector back in growth mode, too. In the meantime, was Asian factory numbers also looking good, if you remember this month. But again, the recovery uneven. Japan declaring a state of emergency in four prefectures, including Tokyo. And as I mentioned, in India, more than 330,000 new COVID cases were recorded in the country today, a new global record, and an additional 2,200 lives lost. Just to give you some perspective on this, the population of Iceland is 340,000 people. We are basically talking about the entire population of Iceland getting sick every day in India. And that's where we begin the drivers. Anna Cohen has the latest on the desperate situation in India. 22-year-old Vishwarup Sharma believes he is living in hell. Three days ago, he drove his critically ill father who contracted COVID to a Delhi hospital and pleaded for help. With no beds, no oxygen, they were forced to wait outside. Sharma rubbing his father's back, trying to offer reassuring words, but no help came. He knows he, he, he will going to die and he was saying he, I'm going, I, I won't be able to breathe, I need something, I need, I need more medicines. But nothing is provided to him and he died in front of me on my hands. Sharma told CNN he returned home to find his mother, now a widow, struggling to breathe. She too had contracted the deadly virus. With the help of friends, he purchases an oxygen cylinder on the black market. And for the next few days, he drives from hospital to hospital with his mother in the back seat, breathing through an oxygen mask. Finally, he finds an available bed at a hospital 100 kilometres away. She was consoling me that don't be worried, I'll be back, I'll be back, don't worry. If God is with us, I'll be back. 
India is facing a second wave that's turned into a tsunami, catching the nation's government completely off guard that failed to stockpile or prepare for this moment. Given the number of infections that we already have and the people they might have already infected, I do not expect the case count to go down before three or four weeks and the death count to go down until at least two to three weeks thereafter. Hospitals are at breaking point with an acute shortage of beds and oxygen. The capital, Delhi, has less than half the required oxygen for COVID patients, despite India being one of the world's largest producers of medical and industrial oxygen. The High Court has criticised the central government's handling of the oxygen crisis, describing the shortage as ridiculous. Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced measures to increase the production and supply of oxygen, but the duty of the government now falling to private citizens. It's a horrible situation. It is as if the government has completely abdicated its responsibility. There is no help anywhere. The health system has completely collapsed. Activists and TV host Tashin Punawala and his wife Monica are using their celebrity, influence and resources to help desperate Indians source oxygen, cylinders and hospital beds, which they believe shouldn't be a privilege but a fundamental right. Thousands are appealing to them on social media, but for every 50 they say they can only manage to help one. They call us with hope and, and we can't fulfil it. It's, it's very difficult. Imagine you have oxygen, you don't have cylinders. Imagine you have oxygen in the country, you can't transport the oxygen. And therefore people are dying with oxygen. It's, it's criminal. For Sharma, a student studying law, he knows firsthand how much his country is now suffering. As he prepares to pick up his father's remains from the crematorium, he is praying that COVID doesn't take his mother as well. I'm totally helpless because I have, I have lost my father two, three days ago and I have left my mom in the hospital and I'm so helpless. I'm all alone now. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. And in around 15 minutes, we'll hear from the co-chairman of India's COVID-19 vaccine task force to find out what more can be done. Now from India to Japan, where a state of emergency is declared for four prefectures, including populous Tokyo and Osaka. The measures will go into effect on Sunday. COVID cases surging there just three months before the Summer Olympics. Selena Wang is live in Osaka for us, so clearly one of the worst affected areas. Selena what restrictions are we talking about here? And I guess the big question is, will they work and how quickly will they work? Julia, that's exactly right. So this state of emergency covers Tokyo, Osaka, two other prefectures, but this is not a hard lockdown. It's only going to last until May 11th. It will require large commercial venues like shopping malls and places that serve alcohol to shut down. But as you say, the big question here is, is this going to work? Because Tokyo, Osaka and many other parts of Japan have already been under these quasi state of emergency imposed in position. And so that has required restaurants and bars to shut down early, but it hasn't had an effect. COVID cases in Japan continue to climb, topping more than 5,000 a day. Now, some analysts say that this could lead Japan to go back into recession. This state of emergency will cover the golden week holiday, which is normally one of the busiest time for travel in Japan. Meantime, you also have the Tokyo Motor Show canceling. Organizers saying that they're unable to hold this big event because of the pandemic. And Julia, that does lead to major questions about the ability of the Olympics to be held here in just three months.
I mean, it's a huge challenge and time is slipping away. Selena, I think we need to get a perspective, though, on the number of cases per portion of the population in Japan relative to the United States, for example, just to look at the relative handling. Clearly, vaccine delivery is different. But just in terms of COVID cases, what are we seeing in Japan in perspective? I think that is a very important point, Julia. Japan has managed the enormous explosion of cases that we've seen in other parts of the world, in parts of Western Europe, as well as in the U.S. Japan so far has reported more than half a million cases and nearly 10,000 deaths. But this wave is particularly concerning, not only because we're just months away from the games, but also because they're being driven by more contagious COVID variants. So I'm here in Osaka, which is the epicenter of this current outbreak. It is the hardest hit area. And a government panel of experts found that about 80% of the infections here are driven by these more contagious COVID variants. In addition to that, you have the governor of Osaka saying that its medical system is on the brink of collapse. Not only that, but you right now have less than one percent of the Japanese population fully vaccinated. The majority of healthcare workers haven't even had a single dose of the vaccine. Japan may be seen as one of the world's most technologically advanced countries, but it has struggled enormously when it comes to the vaccine rollout for reasons that include red tape, supply chain issues, and simply poor planning. So I've been speaking to many experts who say that they are concerned about the risks of these games becoming a super spreader event. But as we've discussed before, in spite of all of these challenges, the government, the prime minister have continued to reiterate that they are confident these games will be held as planned. Julia? Yeah, but to your point, the difference in vaccine delivery, a critical difference when you're comparing nations here. And that well and truly uh, the case for Japan. Selena Wang, thank you and stay safe there, please. Okay, from the state of global health to taxing of American wealth, reports that the Biden administration is readying a massive shift in the way the richest Americans are taxed by taxing wealth or investment gains in the same way that they tax wages. A proposal that could have significant implications for Wall Street. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us. I'm not sure we should be surprised. I mean, President Biden promised this in the campaign, $4 trillion worth of, of tax rises. But Cryptocurrencies reacted, stocks reacted. It's a big jump in capital gains tax if it comes through. It is. It's a tax tantrum that no one should have been surprised about. And also, if you look at just how much the stock market fell yesterday, stocks, not crypto, the the stock market fell, you know, if they really believed that they were going to have a 40-something percent uh, uh, capital gains tax on on the highest earners, I I, I think that you would have had a bigger sell-off than this. Or if they really believed that that would kill, uh, you know, kill the rally, you would have had a bigger sell-off. It it took a little bit back here. So we'll watch to see how this proposal works its way through. Uh, Caitlin Collins and Jeff Zeleny, our colleagues, are reporting um, that the White House is, is planning a 39.6 percent uh, tax rate on, on Americans making $400,000 and more, and then using that tax rate for people, uh, capital gains tax rate for people who earn a million dollars or more. So the optics here are tax the rich, the really rich, and the White House continuing to promise it will not raise taxes on anybody making $400,000 a year or less. It's quite fascinating, you know, because I do think about uh, the terminology I use, and that's exactly why I called it a tax tumble rather than tax tantrum, because if this were actually enacted into law, I think we would see far greater selling pressure as people go, OK, I'm going to get in here and capitalize on the, the gains that I've made before this yeah. tax rise comes in. I mean, in certain cases, I was looking at it for California and for New York, you could be seeing tax rates approaching 60 percent when you include state taxes and federal taxes. And that's the question, Christine. How likely is it 
that this I, is passed by Congress? This, this, I think, is the starting point for the discussions. They'd have to do an awful lot of convincing to get this through, no question here. But an interesting thing, I mean, I'm looking back at the charts, and Lizanne Saunders, the economist, where the stock market strategist was actually posting this a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. looking back at recent times when the capital gains tax has been raised, guess what? It was raised in 2013, and the S&P was up with 30% that year. You did not see the negative effect on the stock market writ large for the for the year. So trying to look for that correlation between higher capital gains, ta- gains taxes and, and what happens in the stock market, it's, it's not sort of consistently evident in the, in the most recent past. You also have a, an economy that is improving, a stock market that's been up very, very well. And I think the White House has wind in its sails because of strength you're seeing in the recovery elsewhere, that they think they can try to make this case for fairness, that uh, wages and investment income should be taxed the same way, at least for the very rich. Yeah, I hear you. The only pushback I'll make is we've never risen capital um, gains taxes by 100% yes. before. you're right. And that's what you're this right. is. Whoa. Christine, thank you. Have a great nice weekend. Christine Williams. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the stories making headlines around the world. Indonesian officials have narrowed down their search for a missing submarine to just one area. They've sent ships to the north of Bali, where they spotted an oil spill and an object with a strong magnetic force. They're hoping to find the vessel soon, since it could run out of oxygen by Saturday. CNN's Ivan Watson joins us live for more. Ivan, what more do we know? Well, the the race is really on to, mm. to try to locate this submarine that went missing. It was last uh, in contact, the Indonesian military says, uh, at 3 a.m. local time on Wednesday, it was sailing through the Bali Strait, uh, and it descended at that point, and that's when it lost contact. Now, the Indonesian authorities estimate it has enough air uh, for the 53 crew members on board to last till about 3 a.m. on Saturday, some 72 hours. It's now Friday night here in Asia, so you can really see that the time is running out for the people on board this vessel. The Indonesian authorities uh, have really scrambled an armada to, to try to look for this ship. They say that there are some 21 Indonesian warships, another submarine as well. And then there are ships that have come from other countries that have rushed to, to assist, including two ships, warships from Australia, from Malaysia, from Singapore and India, all on their way to to try to help with this. Uh, it's unclear why the submarine, the Nangala, lost contact. It was supposed to be conducting uh, live fire exercises with, with torpedoes. And for the, the families of the 53 crew members, there is an agonizing wait underway. Take a listen to what the wife of one of the crew members had to say. Hopefully he is safe and my husband and all the Nangala crew members who are there can reunite with family. Until now, there has been no official news. And the Indonesian president, Jokowi, he uh, earlier this week, he, he called on Indonesians to, to pray for a smooth search and rescue operation. Julia? Yeah, we pray with them. Ivan Watson, thank you for that update there. 
The imprisoned Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny says he's ending his weeks-long hunger strike. It comes a day after he was urged to do so by doctors that support him. He says he's lost sensitivity in parts of his arms and legs and has been treated by civilian doctors, but he's still demanding access to better medical care during his imprisonment. U.S. President Joe Biden kicking off the second day of his climate summit with world leaders is expected to speak about the economic benefits to be won by tackling the environmental crisis. On Thursday, he and other leaders promised to reduce carbon emissions over the next few years. All right. Coming up here on First Move, keeping an eye on AI, why Europe wants to regulate artificial intelligence and how they're going about it. And fear and anger on the streets of India as it struggles to contain COVID-19. The country's leading scientific advisor is up next. Back to first move, a bit of a delayed Earth Day green on the screen for the Wall Street majors after yesterday's fall to Earth with a thud. The S&P on track for its first losing week in over a month, despite overall optimism from companies over strengthening economies. Karmika Daimler rising, raising its full-year forecast as sales pick up in its biggest market, China. Chip giant, meanwhile, Intel out with mixed results, disappointing profits, but raising its sales outlook. In the meantime, Johnson & Johnson moving higher in pre-market trading. U.S. officials might lift restrictions on its COVID vaccine as soon as today, but with new warnings on the blood clot dangers. The EU, meantime, reportedly sealing a deal with Pfizer to deliver as many as 1.8 billion new doses of its COVID vaccine to the region, which would clearly be great news there. OK, let's bring it back to our top story today. Six weeks ago, the Indian government announced it was in the end game, quote, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, officials reported more than 332,000 new infections, a new daily high for the second day running for any country in the world. In just four days, one million new cases have been diagnosed, with a new variant of the virus also causing alarm. Everything's in short supply, intensive care beds, medicine, oxygen and ventilators. Bodies are piling up in morgues and crematoriums. Mass cremations have been taking place. Despite being the world's biggest vaccine producer, only about 130 million doses have been administered in a country with more than a billion people. Two vaccines are available, Covishield, developed by Oxford AstraZeneca, and Covaxin, made by Barrett Biotech. India is reviewing other foreign vaccines, but a supply crunch could slow things down. There's much to discuss. Professor Vijay Raghavan is the principal scientific advisor for the government of India. He's also co-chairman of India's COVID-19 vaccine task force. Professor, we thank you so much for your time. I know you must be incredibly busy. You've recently described the situation with the virus as challenging. To the outside world, it looks desperate. And there are accusations that the government has lost control. Has the government lost control of this latest outbreak? You know, we must understand uh, what is happening now is just enormous. And there's a huge surge. And, you know, there are many factors which have contributed to the surge, some anticipated and some unanticipated. But even the anticipated ones where the government put in measures 
we did not see, no one saw the extent of the surge. So we must see that the volume of cases has just gone out, as you said, several hundred thousands a day with 11-day doubling. And this requires intense action, which is being put in place. That's not easy. It requires... That's happening. It requires intense lockdowns. Is the government going far enough, whether it's the state or the national government, to lock people down if necessary to protect the healthcare system and protect lives? So, um, you know, we must, again, understand what is driving this surge. And there are multiple factors over here. One is, as the previous wave came down, there was in all of us a feeling that this was, you know, something which had been dealt with substantially. We saw signs of a next surge, but the scale and the intensity of it was not clear. The lockdown at the first time was done because we did not have our PPEs, ventilators, hospital setups ready. Today we have those, they need to be scaled up enormously. Vaccines delivery needs to be scaled up enormously. So the point which we need to do now is to look at local situations in districts, cities, towns, and see what containment can be done there, prevent the interactions of those regions where there are high surges with other locations, and you know, deal with testing on scale, vaccination on scale, so that we can bring this down. So local containment would be a way to deal with this right now, rather than a national lockdown. Define containment, because to your point, you dealt quite well with the first wave We've been dealing with COVID now for a year. There are many people that are desperate on social media talking from India and saying, why are we having oxygen shortages? Why are we having supply shortages? We've had a year to prepare and we're not ready for this. Why is this happening, sir? And, and clearly the government needs to move more quickly to, to, to address some of these shortages and issues. Absolutely. You know, we, are, we right now needs to, need to first focus on the immediate needs. Uh, and that make sure that every effort is being put, and we are putting in every effort, while pushing to deal with what needs to be done in the coming weeks also. Now, oxygen availability has been pushed over the last few days, both in terms of diverting manufacturing, importing, distribution, and looking at local availability. This, hopefully, will start seeing results uh, soon. It has been a horrendously large impact on some cities, uh, you know, this is of such a scale that everyone knows everyone as, as someone who's affected personally, friends or relatives. So hospital capacity building is another area which, you know, needs to be, effect, uh, to be ramped up. Our defense labs and the defense services are scaling up makeshift hospitals uh, rapidly, as well as increasing uh, COVID capacity in the hospitals. So these things are being done. But as you rightly pointed out, the surge is of such a level that you know, no matter how much healthcare capacity is ramped up or was ramped up after the first wave, uh, this is not yet uh, sufficient. What can you tell us about the double mutant strain of the virus and how concerned are you about its resistance to vaccines? Yeah, so, um, you know, there are multiple um, variants going on, and I wouldn't use the term double mutant or triple mutant. The variants of concern, as they're called, uh, first of all, are the UK variant, the B117, and the B617, which you refer to as a double mutant. Now, they have mutations in them, which both increase 
transmissibility, and potentially vaccine evasiveness. Fortunately, right now, our early results show that uh, you know these variants uh, are still, um, you know, the vaccines which we have at hand are still have impact on these variants. So that's the good news. But along with all the other, you know, reasons which I've referred to, uh, loosening up before uh, we should have uh, about, you know, our healthcare capacity being needed. It's also important to keep in mind that these variants have spread a lot. They constitute, by some estimates, about 60% uh, in one state, Maharashtra, and perhaps together uh, constitute substantially uh, similar numbers in the Delhi region, and they're going to other regions. Therefore, it's all the more reason two things are done simultaneously. One, we have ramped up sequencing, and that needs to scale up much, much more. So that sequencing, along with what happens, sequencing of the viral genome, along with what happens to individual patients, groups of patients, different categories of patients, that integrated information structure is being analyzed. So that's very important. It's a really tough call for our healthcare workers and our laboratories to scale and attend to this, but this is vital. The second aspect is to ramp up vaccination. Since vaccines are effective, they need to be ramped up. And that's being done uh, by, as you said earlier, opening up vaccination uh, by having you know, international uh, vaccines, which have been approved elsewhere, also coming in, in addition to the lower ones, uh, in the local ones, and also having uh, vaccine supplies open to states and private players to buy. So a combination of this uh, increased hospital capacity uh, massive testing is very important. That's something else also being scaled. Understanding the genomics of the spread and increased vaccination should start crunching this. Otherwise, we can't, uh, you know, go on predictions about what happens if we do nothing. There are many things we can and should do, and we all need to come together for that. I mean, all these things take time. To your point, and thousands of people are dying daily. As said earlier on the show, the entire population of Iceland equivalent is getting sick every day in India. There, there is no time. Are we seeing the worst here, Professor, or will it still get worse from today while you battle to take late measures? I think by your own admission, the government's acted late. You know, the important issue here is not so much predicting of what the shape of the curve will be. Those, we can see how steep it is. We don't need at this stage statisticians to tell us what the shape of the curve is and how much mm. is happening every day. And we are doing everything. Every day there's meetings and action taken with state governments, with hospitals, with cities, with districts. So it's very intense in terms of what's happening on the ground. Now, it also needs to be balanced with the size of what we're de dealing with. So I think we will start seeing impact of the measures uh, and, uh, you know, the multiple kinds of uh, inputs of oxygen, uh, medicines, treatment facilities coming in. But it's too difficult to predict what will happen, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. I understand. Professor, India also is home to the Serum Institute, the largest manufacturing um, of, of vaccines in the world. Many poor nations around the world rely on the vaccines that, that are manufactured in India. And obviously, there have been restrictions while you focus on the challenges at home. Can you give us any sense of when those restrictions on the Serum Institute's exports to other nations may be relaxed? Or is it just too difficult to say at this stage? Well, India followed the principle that 
no one is safe till everyone is safe. We were one of the few countries which reached out to other countries earlier on last year, as soon as vaccines made here became available. Mm. Now, vaccines being made here, both in terms of a you know, moral purpose about being available for everyone is important. Uh, but also keep in mind that when you manufacture vaccines here, you do so with components which are imported from elsewhere. So it's equally important if India is to serve the world that countries such as America also don't restrict the imports of components needed vitally to manufacture vaccines. That needs to be said very, very clearly. When these things happen, and now it's, it's you know, the number of vaccine companies uh, in the play is increased, we are going to see substantial building up of capacity here. Indian capacity, both by the Serum Institute you mentioned and the Johnson & Johnson partnership with Biological E, can serve not only India, but the world, along with, you know, Covaxin from Bharat Biotech and, you know, other vaccines which are in the pipeline for approval. So India is committed, even in this crisis, of amplifying vaccine development. We have a huge challenge in ramping it up here, which we are doing. And as our crisis diminishes, we will open up again for others too. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. I know you are incredibly busy and we wish you and your nation well. Professor Vijay Raghavan, the, the Principal Scientific Advisor for the Government of India. So thank you again. All right, coming up on First Move, anything artificial about this intelligence? The challenge of regulating AI in Europe, Competition Commissioner is up next. Welcome back to First Move. A mixed start to the Wall Street trading day. Nervousness persists over reports that the Biden administration wants to almost double capital gains tax rates to almost 40 percent for the wealthiest Americans. Goldman Sachs, however, trying to calm nerves. It says there's no way Congress will sign off on such a sizable tax hike. Now, from tax hike goals to failed football goals, call it a J.P. Morgan mea culpa. The banking giant apologising for its decision to fund the ill-fated football Super League. The company saying in a statement today, quote, we clearly misjudged how this deal would be viewed by the wider football community and how it might impact them in future. We will learn from this. Hmm. All right. In the meantime, the European Union was the global pioneer for regulating data protection and privacy. And now it's taking on artificial intelligence, announcing proposals that would regulate the use of AI, targeting high-risk applications like facial recognition software. It will take years to become law, but it's already causing some pretty heated debate. Launching those proposals was Margrethe Vestager. She joins us now. She's the European Commissioner's Executive Vice President and Chair of the group Europe Fit for the Digital Age and, of course, EU Commissioner for Competition. Fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, clearly, you've flown the flag for regulation around the world, for big technology companies, but beyond. Do you think you've found the balance right between protecting consumers, but also fostering trust and innovation with this proposal? Well, that, that is exactly the point. And thank you very much for, uh, for having me. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. The, the point is that we should embrace technology. We should make so much more use uh, of artificial intelligence. But I only think that that can happen if we trust it, in particular in areas where it's about, can I get a mortgage? Can I get an insurance? Uh, can my children be accepted uh, at an educational institution? All these elements of our life, 
where artificial intelligence will be used, we need to be able to trust that uh, it will be right and that will not be a risk to our fundamental values. I mean, you're always going to get criticism on this. You've got the tech lobbyists saying you're going to suppress innovation in a nascent technology before it's even started. And then I look at sort of human and digital rights groups that are coming forward and saying you're allowing too much scope for self-regulation and determination from these AI companies, particularly on issues like discriminatory use of AI, surveillance technologies. Commissioner, what's your response? Well, we have taken a, a risk-based approach, we call it, uh, to say, well, if things are extremely risky, we will also be extremely strict. Uh, for instance, a couple of, uh, of use cases that we would prohibit uh, altogether. Uh, one of them would be the use of sort of subliminal techniques uh, that would make you do things that can harm you or are dangerous to you or other people. Uh, it could be the use of, uh, of social scoring uh, within the union, uh, a, a government who follows you around and gives you points and, and for that to have effect on your access, for instance, to public services. Um, the, the, real, the real sort of yes, where, where there's a lot of volume in, in our proposal is, of course, when it comes to high risk that those who uh, use this technology, where there is a risk of uh, women being sorted out or minorities or people with a weaker social background, there, of course, you need to make sure that the, that the technology actually sees, uh, sees the talent, sees the qualification and doesn't misjudge uh, old patterns and think that maybe only uh, yeah, a man can do this. <laughs> No comment on that. Um, um, Commissioner, you, the challenge here, I think, and you've made the Commission renowned, I think, for having more bite than it's ever had in the past with tackling some of the big tech companies in particular, that obviously will be looking at this and are looking at this at this moment. But the time it takes to get all the EU nations to agree to this, we're talking not before 2023. And even the size of the potential fines, are they big enough if we're talking about 6% of, of global annual turnover? It sounds big, but the cash generation of some of these companies is so huge. I just wonder whether the threat's potent enough. Well, obviously, the point is not to cash in fines. Uh, the point is for te uh, technology to develop in a way that people feel that they can trust it. And actually, I do think that uh, by second thought, maybe also uh, tech developers will see that we have aligned interest here. Because if you consider, for instance, a public sector in a municipality, you want to support your social workers with, uh, with software. No elected uh, official will take that uh, risk if they do not see that the technology is actually developed uh, with human oversight, uh, with the sufficient quality of data, with the explainability uh, needed, and of course, with the highest level of cybersecurity. So actually, I think this will have a market opening uh, effect rather than the opposite. Uh, and this is why I think that the timing to table the proposal right now is, is quite good, because some of these use cases, they are still somewhat nascent, even though we have artificial intelligence uh, already uh, all around us to advise us for films or music or, or whatever, how to get from, uh, from A to B. So, so I think even though, of course, it will take some time for Parliament and Council to discuss it, I think the, uh, the, the sort of getting an idea about the European direction, uh, I think that will start already now. I think 
creating an environment where you foster innovation is something actually that by and large Europe's missed over the last 10 years. And you've also been given the additional title and role of, of bringing Europe into the 21st century as far as digitization and technology is concerned. And, and two things on this have jumped out at me. The first, how do we make sure that Europe's creating the kind of unicorns, more unicorns that have grown so quickly over the past decade or so in the United States? And the other thing is with chip shortages, which has been very topical recently. And I want to start there. Europe planning to produce over the next 10 years or hope to around 20 percent of the globe's semiconductors. Vital issue. How are you going to go about this? And are you spending enough money doing it? Um, obviously, these things are, are tricky, uh, just as, as they are extremely strategically important, uh, because already now we find chips in so many things around us and we will find even more in the future. We find them in the car, we find them in machinery, we find them yeah, in, in many, many different places. And, and one of the things that we will do in, in the coming months and years is to, to sort of develop uh, our mutual dependencies because Europe has some uh, incredible strongholds when it comes to the uh, design and production of the machine that actually produces the chips uh, and the designs of the chip itself. Uh, and what is important for us is, of course, that uh, we can see that we are part of the ecosystem of producing chips, but also, of course, being part of that globally, because Europe will still be sourcing chips from, from all over this planet. Uh, that goes without saying. Uh, our use will be bigger uh, than our production. Uh, and, and now investments get started. Uh, we see how the important project that we have of common European interests, where member states and businesses uh, invest together, they are making progress uh, also for this next generation where, where we want the energy consumption uh, to be reduced uh, in order also to make it uh, climate change uh, compliant. So, so we're, we're pushing this. And on the first, uh, the first uh, question of how to create uh, or enable more unicorns, mm. well, uh, one of the reasons why it is so important that public sector feel that they can trust, for instance, artificial intelligence, is that then the public demand will increase. And, and public demand is one of the keys for also smaller and medium-sized businesses to sort of rethink their business idea to be part of uh, the digital transformation, because then they will be part also of this uh, ecosystem. And, and this is, this is the, the, the sort of the push uh, that we need, uh, but it, it can not be overestimated uh, the importance of access to capital, real oh. working capital that comes with competence. Uh, that is, of course, crucial because if you're a small startup and, oh, you love your product and you have put everything you, you have and everything you can into it, in order to scale that business, you need new competences uh, to come on board. And those competences, they very often comes with capital. So there is no way around it. Now we have the legal uh, framework for uh, the European uh, Capital Union uh, to work well. Now, of course, we need for investors to see that it is indeed worthwhile to come to Europe. Yeah, because that's why we lost them all to Silicon Valley in the past. Or well, Europe did. I should be careful how I, how I uh, pronounce and say that. <laughs> so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And it's clearly a work in progress. It was but my pleasure. Eyes on the price. Thank you. Thank the you very much. For competition there. Thank you so much again.
All right, ahead on First Move, recycled rockets, another successful launch for SpaceX and NASA. More from Mission Control next. Elon Musk providing a lift for more astronauts, a crew of two Americans, one Japanese and one from France, hitching a ride on a SpaceX craft bound for the International Space Station. Joining us now is CNN's space correspondent, Rachel Crane. Rachel, great to have you with us. I will never tire of watching these moments, nor will I ever tire of watching your awe and excitement when you're reporting on them. But for me, actually, the real beauty of this is the recycled rockets effect. Explain that part of what makes this so historic, too. You're right, Julia. I mean, I, this never gets old coming to these <laughs> rocket launches. And what's significant is I've been to three of them in the last 11 months. That really speaks to the cadence of these launches. You know, before uh, Demo 2, which happened nearly a year ago, uh, there hadn't been a, uh, a, uh, a crude launch launch from American soil in nearly a decade. And now we've had three of them in less than a year. But to your point about the reusability element here, that's it's really hard to overemphasize how important that is. The fact that this rocket booster had already flown to space, and has, as had the space capsule Endeavour. Uh, the booster had flown Crew-1 to the International Space Station in November, and Endeavour, of course, was the same capsule that flew Demo-2, uh, Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley to the Inter- International Space Station nearly a year ago. That's because SpaceX, you know, one of their tentpole strategies is uh, in reducing the cost of spaceflight is reusability. So, you know, actually right now, they estimate that a uh, the cost of a uh, seat on Crew Dragon is about $55 million. We've been paying the Russians over $80 billion a seat. So that's also a price tag that SpaceX and NASA expects to go down as they continue to reuse these systems. And you could see on the rocket booster that it was scorched and there was all this soot. In fact, the astronauts who flew today, they actually wrote their name in the soot on the side of the booster before taking off, uh, really making it their own. But SpaceX proudly displaying those scorch marks because it really highlights how they have cracked the nut here on reusability. And this was the first time that a a crewed mission was flown on any reused hardware, space flight proven hardware. And of course, SpaceX and NASA had to run through uh, thousands of tests on on both the the first stage rocket booster as well as the space capsule to ensure that it was in fact safe for the crew to you know blast off planet earth and go to the international space station on that system and as we saw today it went off without a hitch it was a gorgeous gorgeous liftoff and they are currently making their way to the international space station the expected journey is it's expected that the journey will be about 24 hours julia yeah, I mean, for the bargain price of $55 million per seat, but clearly, to your point, it is a bargain relative to what the Americans are paying the Russians. But wowzers, it's still expensive. Rachel, very quickly, when do we expect the returning astronauts to touch down? Because this is also exciting, too. Yeah, so the returning astronauts, Crew 1, they're currently up there. And in fact, when Crew 2 gets there, there's going to be 11 astronauts on the International Space Station. So it's going to be quite crowded. Uh, Crew 1 is set to splash down on Wednesday. But of course, these things, uh, they tend to slide as we saw this. This launch was supposed to happen yesterday. Really, Mother Nature dictates a lot of this. You know, so much planning goes into these launches and these splashdowns. But it's really Mother Nature that dictates when they're truly going to happen. Julia. Yes, I'm a Brit. I like talking about the weather. Always. Rachel Crane, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Digital banks are growing in size and scale all around the world, including in the UAE, launching its first fully independent digital bank. John Defterius explores in today's Think Big. What is the, the big idea? Is it to be a disruptor? Digital banking is new. It can challenge the uh, homegrown players that have been in traditional banking. How do you see your big idea? John, the big idea is that it's the first digital bank in the country. The big idea that it's the first digital bank that looks after consumers and corporate at the same time. But I believe the bigger idea that, the, that we, who are the people behind the bank, we live digital life. We have digital businesses. Having that state of mind is the real big idea because you can think digitally. The United States and Europe, Asia, about 70%, 80% of the jobs are linked to small uh, and medium-sized enterprises. And I know it's a priority in the UAE to foster this sector. What's going to be the role of Zand in that space then? I guess in the UAE, you know, we really, we're late in helping uh, small businesses. Uh, but this technology, with all the fintech partners, I have to give them credit, they will make it so much easier, so much efficient, cheaper to provide services and funding uh, and product uh, for small businesses. So when we talk about neobanking, what's the huge advantage for the customer? Uh, the interface, of course, is one, but can you actually give better prices to smaller businesses, personal loans, uh, tech startups as a result of not having the legacy of the brick-and-mortar network? I mean, these systems uh, of new uh, digital banking, you know, no headquarters, no a lot of staff, no branches, uh, no cars. It's pretty simple. You don't even know where the office is. It could be in a warehouse, right? So there's a great amount of saving that you will give back to, to the customer. AI is smarter than all of us combined. I can, I can measure your, your cash flow needs in the future and I give them to you. I can measure your, your debt ability uh, better than a human mind and give that to you. And that's where the small guy will benefit more than uh, anybody else and at the lower cost. But then I can bring you a lot of partners with me to provide you all of your other services. So you will have your supermarket partners, you will have your e-commerce partners, you will have your food delivery partners, because at the end of the day, you will pull resources, you pull data to make sure that your life is complete and comfortable, and you're still sitting in your pajamas. Okay, and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe, please. Have a great weekend and connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.